He is risen. Hallelujah. All of God's Word, the Holy Scriptures, are valuable and precious and worthy of our honor. But I ask you, um, in honor of the greatest account in the Bible that makes every other account true, to stand in honor of the Gospel from Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Alleluia and amen. You may be seated. In the years leading up to World War II, uh, Great Britain was panic-stricken. They believed that in the event of an airstrike by the German Air Force that they would be completely defenseless when it came to London. Um, Experts at that time in the days leading up to the war, they, they predicted the death toll could rise up to a quarter million people in that city. And one government report actually uh, predicted 600,000 people would perish and another 1.2 million people would be injured and would flee to the countryside. Winston Churchill, he said this about London before World War II. He said, London is like a big, fat, vulnerable cow that's tied up to attract beasts of prey. And he said that 3 to 4 million people would be injured and run to the countryside and abandon the city completely. Well, in the fall of 1940, the attack finally came. The German Air Force struck and went over London, and for eight months, they had a blitzkrieg. And for 57 consecutive days to start, they bombed every single night. The death tolls went up to 40,000, and there were 46,000 people injured. It was everything that the British government feared would happen. Except, except, every one of their predictions about how Londoners would react was wrong. They had built psychiatric hospitals outside of the city before the war because they thought that those people would be running to those hospitals. Those hospitals were completely empty, and they had to turn them into military outposts. Um, um, one doctor uh, recorded the, his, his experience as, as this devastation was going on, and there was, there was tons of lives that were lost throughout all of this, and there were millions of buildings that were destroyed or damaged. The whole entire east side of London was, entire neighborhoods were wiped out, and he said that, th- that as he walked down the streets, the Londoners went about their daily business. There was maybe one nun that grabbed a little kid's hand when a siren went off for, a, for an alarm, but everybody else during these air sirens 
They went about their daily business. The shoppers were still haggling over prices, and children were playing in the street, and uh, bicyclers were defying traffic, dodging in and out of traffic, uh, and, and police officers were directing traffic with great boredom, and nobody even looked into the sky when all this tragedy was happening. It was a phenomenon. Everybody stayed put, and nobody was fearful. In fact, uh, after these attacks started happening, there was, um, there was this woman that she wrote in her diary after they got attacked. She wrote this uh, down, and she said, I lay there, after, this is after a bombing happened nearby, I lay there feeling indescribably happy and triumphant. I've been bombed, I kept saying to myself over and over again, trying the phrase on like a new dress to see how it fitted. I've been bombed, I've been bombed, me. It seemed a terrible thing to say when many people were killed and injured last night, but never in my whole life have I ever experienced such pure and flawless happiness. That account, and and some the British today, they say, well, yeah, we just have that stiff British upper lip, and that's what got us through this. Well, you, you know, after this all happened, that psychologists and historians looked at this event, and they did these interviews with people like that uh, right there, and, and Malcolm uh, Gladwell says it really well in his book, David and Goliath, where he explains this all and shows proof that actually the British government started noticing that people during these attacks weren't so much courageous as they showed indifference to the bombs that were dropping all around them. In other words, they call it, and the experts call it this, they call it a remote miss. If you live through a tragic event, and it happens to somebody else, and it's nearby, and you experience it, and just like that lady said, I lived through the bombing, I was bombed, I was bombed, me, all of a sudden you realize that you can endure another bombing and another one. And you, in the theory says, have become a conqueror, and you become indifferent to the bombs that drop all around you. I wonder how you and I can see the resurrection and to recognize that we have a remote miss experience when it comes to death with Jesus. Because I'll tell you, what the enemy hates the most and what that enemy hated the most about Londoners is that they didn't rush away in fear. The worst thing that could have happened for them and the best thing that could have happened for the Germans were for them to flee to the countryside and for there to be a mass panic in their lives, but they all stayed and they all kept living their lives just the way that they were before. You know, the worst thing that Satan wants us to do when the, when the bombs and the blitzkriegs of our life happen, and they will, if they're not happening in your life right now, maybe they have happened, and maybe they will happen. Maybe it's going to be broken relationships. Maybe it's going to be, uh, a, 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 maybe it's going to be addiction. Maybe it's going to be a sin that tears a family apart, or maybe it's a personal demon that you're dealing with. The devil wants you to run in fear to the countryside. And he wants your whole life to be upset. But Jesus' resurrection is a remote misexperience with which you can say, I was bombed, I was bombed, but here I am today standing on my two feet. Jesus was the first one that went through it, okay? He was the first one that was bombed because he was the one that went to the cross for everything that you and I aren't, for all of our sins, and he went and he endured even hell, and then he came out, and, and, and as the angel said, he's not here, he's risen, he's alive. Jesus stands on two feet, and he says with exhilaration and with love and with joy, I've been bombed, I've been bombed for you, here I am. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that you and I are first fruits from among the dead. Okay, so imagine this, think about this. 
Um, you and I are like, uh, let's think that you're, you're planting a garden and you put some wildflower seeds into your garden in the fall. And you know they're going to, you pray that they're going to come up in the spring. They germinate over the winter months. You know in, the, in mid-February or early March that when you see the first flower pop up, you know what's going to come after that first flower? A whole bunch of more flowers after it. And because Jesus came out of the tomb, because he truly was risen from the dead, you know that, that you and I are also going to rise someday too. We have a purpose for today and we have security today. We don't have to run in panic because we know about our future. And Jesus and his resurrection is that future because he's been our casualty. He took the heat of what we deserved and he is our survivor he stands with two feet so that we can stand with two feet as, first fruit, as him as our first fruits and say, I've been bombed, I've been bombed, me, and I've survived. You heard the words just before, the women were going to the tomb. These women, and it's interesting in the book of Luke how these women are just um, all over Luke's story. And Luke is known to bring in outliers from all over uh, uh, Galilee and uh, southern Judea. These people that aren't usually mentioned uh, they're not prominent people, and these people, these women, they weren't prominent in the first century. But Luke mentions them in the story leading up to the resurrection. Uh, these women that says they're from Galilee, and they know Jesus, and they have names. Um, they're, they're following Jesus to the cross, and they, and they cry for Jesus on the way. And they're there at the cross when all of the other wimpy men run away from Jesus. It's the women who stand at a distance of the cross, and they're waiting, and they're watching and it's the women who, who watch the body being taken down and these women see where, see where Jesus' body is laid in the tomb. They stay all the way through it all. And then it says that very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, which would be a Sunday, these women were prepared to worship their Lord that they loved so much. And they had just gone through a blitzkrieg, if you can imagine the last 24, 48 hours. They who had followed Jesus, many of them had seen him raise men off of mats and call corpses out of tombs and, and feed thousands of people and do all this good stuff. Pure love had called them, uh, uh, him their master. The, the one that they trusted and they depended on was taken, snatched away from them. And they might have been thinking to themselves, they might have been angry. How could this bad thing happen to such a good person? How could God allow this? They were, they were confused about, about how quickly it happened, and they were, uh, they were upset in their soul, perhaps, going to that tomb, thinking about what had happened. And as they approach the tomb, they see that it's blown open. The, the, the stone is rolled away, and they think probably to themselves, what now? Did somebody come in and just abuse the body of our Lord that we worship so much? I mean, I mean is, his body, is his body stolen? And they go into the tomb, and what do they see? They see angels. And the angels give them the best news, the news that would change world history forever. The news is this, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. That, my friends, is what separates your faith from every other faith, philosophy, and world religion because there's no one else and there's no one else that has even made the claim that they could do this that has been raised from the dead. Not Buddha, not Joseph Smith. Not Muhammad, and not whatever you believe in. They haven't even made that claim. And if they have made that claim, they have no proof. Because there is no proof. And they've never made that claim that only your Savior has made this claim. And that's what makes your faith what it is. And, and I know, I'm a pragmatic man too. And maybe you're, you're, you're listening in person today or over the airwaves. And maybe you think to yourself, how can I believe in somebody that was dead coming back to life? And I'm, like I said, I need to see something to believe it as well. I do. 
But think with me for just a minute about who's writing. His name is Luke. And he's not an unintelligent man. He's actually a very, very intelligent man. He's a doctor. And he doesn't write, I know some Greek going through school, and I know that there's two types of Greek. There's the common Greek and there's the fancy Greek, the Greek that Socrates and Plato are all written. And guess how, what, which Greek this writer knows? He knows the Plato and the Socrates type of Greek, and he writes that way. He's a smart man, and he's also a doctor. And do you know what he did? He went back to all of the sources in the first century, and he asked them face-to-face in interviews, and he wrote down what he heard and what he saw. And if you're thinking to yourself, and this is what's being taught in schools today, that um, perhaps things like miracles and the resurrection of the body are just pop propaganda that, that, that's used to push your worldview on my worldview, because that is something that, that, that is being, uh, that, that's a spirit of this age, that the Bible is imposing a worldview on me, and that I can't trust it because the authors aren't, because they're pushing their agenda. Think about this. If Luke, and Tim Keller makes a great point about this, if Luke who's writing this all down, is pushing his agenda on you and on me. And he's making up stories about miracles, and he's making up stories about bodies coming to life. Then why would he include women as the first witnesses of the resurrection? Women in the first century, they couldn't go to court and be a witness. Women couldn't make testimony because it was thought that their testimony was not credible. And so think about that. The writers of the Gospels are so honest, so honest, that they're writing down for you that the first witnesses were true witnesses and that they were women. And the other Gospels give them names, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, Salome. One expert, one commentator, he says this, he says, that was the first century way of putting footnotes so that if you had a question about it, you could go back to those people and they would tell you themselves. Paul says later, 500 people all saw Jesus all at once. I've never seen a body being raised for the dead. But guess what? I never saw World War II either, but I believe it happened, and I believe there are eyewitnesses of it. What you believe about the Bible and what it teaches and its morality and, 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 and its doctrine, you might have an opinion on, but I know that this book is written like no other book. It's written by people who saw the resurrection. It's not written like all the other holy books with an omniscient view of somebody just telling us how it all is, but it's written by the people who actually lived through it. But I don't want your faith to be convinced just by that argument. God wants your heart to be convinced by what he did, and this is what it says he did. The angel says to these women, they're confused, they're angry, they're getting themselves together. I can't imagine being in the presence of an angel just like that all of a sudden. The angel says, remember what Jesus said to you. And this is the reason why Jesus wanted to, to, to tell them beforehand, so that they wouldn't be afraid, but they forgot. They, he, they say this, that Jesus said that he must be handed over to sinful people, and that he must suffer In other words, Jesus must be your casualty. There had to be somebody that paid a price for you, that had to be blitzkrieg, that had to be bombed for you. And Jesus was that person. He was the one that went to the cross. He was the one that died an innocent death in your place. You and I struggle with a God that could send people to hell, okay? But that's what the Bible says is true. And if, if you do believe, this is, the, this is the thing, if you do believe in a God who is loving and who is kind and who is compassionate and who is not bad at all, then you believe in a God that has a hell in his plan. Because, let me ask you, the bombing in Brussels, was that evil? 
Let me ask you, is child abuse evil? Is genocide evil? If you believe in a God that just lets that all go, if you just lets it all, all happen with, with just winking his eye and saying, that's fine, that can go on, then you don't believe in a good God at all. But you know what? God has a place where he punishes evil and where evil ends. There's, the buck stops there, and that place is called hell. And the Bible talks about that as being a very real place. And you might say to yourself, well, I'm not at Brussels. I'm not committing that crime. I'm not genocide. I'm not a, 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 you know, I'm not a, a child abuser. But you know what the Bible says? That even the cream of the crop, even the people that try their very best, even if they have those thoughts ever, in any way, shape, or form, or anybody, and this is really what sin is, anybody who puts themselves above God in any way, that's evil in God's eyes. And that's not pure. And that's not holy. And that place, hell, was made for those kind of people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, and this is where Jesus is our casualty, it says in the Bible that he suffered hell for you and me. And so when those women hear the words from the angels, don't you remember that he must suffer and die, that he must be put into the hands of evil men? The angels were reminding them of this, of their, their sinfulness. And that God said, I must take it upon myself to go and rescue Dan, to go and rescue Ron, to go and rescue Allison. I want to rescue them because I must do it out of my love. And that shows you God's great love and the great bomb that he took for you and me. And then Easter comes, and the angel finishes by saying this, you must, that the Son of Man, Jesus, must be delivered over into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, he must be raised again. You heard the word spoken just a couple of minutes ago that people, even in the Old Testament, like Job, believed that there would be a resurrection and that there would be a finality and an exclamation point that said, I was bombed, I was bombed, me, and I lived through it. And Jesus is that exclamation point. You may not be like those women wondering about your, your leader on earth that had just been taken away from you, uh, but I believe that there is fear and there is anger, and there is confusion in all of our hearts because we don't have it all figured out. I want to be a messenger for you. The word angel, it means messenger, and it took these women going to the tomb of Jesus to a place where they knew they would find their Lord, where a messenger came to them and said, this is what Jesus wants for your heart. And I believe God has brought you here today. I'm no angel, trust me. <laughs> I'm a messenger from God's word, and I want to tell you what the resurrection means for you today. First of all, spiritually. Think about the resurrection like a prison term. A man, he commits a crime, and it's a real crime, and he goes to jail for 30 years. 30 years he spends in jail. Until one day, he's let out of jail after 30 years because his sentence is over. Now, let me ask you, can the police go to that man, and can they arrest him for that same crime and throw him back into jail? No. Why? Because the prison sentence has been paid. Because it's been paid down and you can't accuse somebody and you can't make somebody go back to jail for something that they've already paid the time for. Jesus paid the time for you. And when he comes out of the tomb, that's your prison break. And nobody can come up to you after, after any sin that you've committed. And they cannot come up to you and say, you are going to hell. You're going to die forever because you're going to point right back to that cross and that empty tomb. <laughs> and you're going to say, wait, who's in there? No one. You don't go into a prison and look for somebody that's been released because of they've done their time. So that's the first way I want you to think about the resurrection. The second way is this. It's a receipt. 
The resurrection, the empty tomb, is like when you go to the store and you're doing your Christmas shopping at a department store, and you go and you buy clothes for, let's say, your daughter, you buy some clothes, and you put it in a bag, and you get asked for the receipt. You're not done shopping because you want to go over to the electronics section and check out the Xbox Ones. You're not sure if you're going to like the price there, but you just want to look. You just want to browse. But as you're going through the store with the purchase in your hand, the security guard stops you. What does he want to see? Did you pay for that? You pull out the receipt and you say, it's paid for. The empty tomb is God's big receipt for the whole world. Jesus paid for their sins and he says, if anybody tries to tell you that it's not paid for, look inside that tomb. Who's there? No one. You're free. It's paid for forever. You don't have to fear your sin. You don't have to fear death. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that because the resurrection of Jesus in the Christian faith doesn't just promise you that your sins are all forgiven, which is unique to only the Christian faith, and they're all paid for for free forever, but it also gives you restoration and it gives you hope today, living on earth, because you know that you have a future. I had a radio interview yesterday, um, and somebody asked me about what the resurrection means to me personally. And you know what it means to me personally? I can suffer today. I can go through whatever blitzkrieg is going to go on today because I am sure of the future. When I look in that tomb and I see that it's empty, when I see that the grave has no rule over me, I know that I can get through today. I can get through this relationship. I can get through this downer of a moment or a downer of a season. Because unlike any other world religion or philosophy or faith, which offers eternal life, and they, it's as a consolation prize, like a prize, like, hey, you got through it, you're going to get your body back. Jesus gives you full restoration and the fullness of God in the afterlife. That's what the Bible promises when it says that your body is going to be raised from the dead. And so it, it, think about it with me. With the resurrection, it means that my survivor came out of the tomb, and I maybe have not treated my body like I should have. And maybe I let my body down. Or maybe my body's letting me down. I've tried taking care of it the best that I can, but my knees are still giving it out. And uh, maybe I've gotten cancer, or maybe I have disease. I know, I know that this isn't the final body that I'm getting, but I know that when Jesus comes back to take me to be with him, that he's going to give me the perfect body. And that my body's not going to hurt, and my body's not going to perish, and my body's not going to die, but I'm going to be given the best body. Not just given my body back, given the best, perfect, holy body. I know that. And you know what? Maybe I don't like the candidates this year. Maybe I never will like a candidate that will do everything that I ask that candidate to do. And maybe this world, maybe that's the point of the candidates. Maybe that's the point of our leaders, is that they always let us down. But do you know what the resurrection says? It says none of these worldly leaders are going to fulfill your wildest dreams. Because only your Savior, who reigns in heaven today and is risen, only he is going to be the ruler who is fair and just and never does anything to hurt or harm the people that he rules over. And you live in that kingdom today. And you can endure the bad candidates today. And what about fear? What about fear that Brussels would happen in Austin? Or what about fear that your school might get shot up? Can you endure that fear? You can with the resurrection. Because you have a God that was terrorized for you on the cross and that has told you 
that he's going to protect you and that he's going to bring your body back fully. And it says in Revelation that every tear, maybe you've been a victim of terrorism, of personal terrorism from another person, or maybe you've lost a loved one this last year. The resurrection says in Revelation that every tear is going to be wiped away from your eyes. That means that you're not even going to remember what happens in this little moment that we call life because the resurrection gives us a future. And what about your relationships? I'm sure that there are many people in this church and outside of this church who are single. And you might be asking yourself, am I going to be single my whole life? Am I going to be unhappy my whole life? Is this what God wants for me? Maybe God will give you a spouse. Maybe God won't give you a spouse. But do you know what the resurrection says? There is a wedding banquet for you. It says that your groom is your savior and that you're not going to find fulfillment in another person or in searching for another person, but you're only going to find fulfillment in the savior that is not in the tomb that is risen and says, I have a wedding banquet ready for you personally, for you. And you are the apple of my eye and you're the one that I care for. And for you marrieds, maybe it's not the honeymoon anymore. In fact, maybe you might be looking at another couple and saying, I wish I had that relationship, and I'd only be happy if I lived like that, pe- those people over here, and, and I'm not, I, this isn't the man that I married, this isn't the woman that I married, I'm so discontent. Do you know what the resurrection says? You're right. You're not going to find ultimate contentment in that person. You're going to find ultimate contentment in the restoration of what marriage really is, which is the love between God and his church, his bride in heaven. Martin Luther once said that suffering is intolerable unless you know about the certainty of the future. And my friends, we know the certainty of our future. Christ died. He paid the penalty for your sins. He is your casualty, and he lives today. He lives today not just to to forgive you, which he does, but he lives today to give you the purpose so that you can stand with him when the blitzkrieg of life comes with two feet and you can say, I was bombed, I was bombed, and I live because he lives. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Amen.